All right, everyone, we're glad you're here tonight. We're so thankful that you're with us for our WANA program. Let's all stand together. We're going to talk about Jesus. Let's sing like we mean it now. Nice and strong. Sing out. Ready? Here we go, everybody. One, two, three. Let's talk about Jesus. Come on, sing now. The King of Kings is He. The Lord of Lords. The Lord of Lords supreme throughout eternity. The Great I Am. The Great I Am. The Way. The Truth. The Life. The Door. Let's talk about Jesus more and more. Outstanding job. Heads bowed. Eyes closed. Everybody, let's pray together. Lord, we love you tonight, and we're glad to be in your house. We are thankful for the opportunity you've given us to assemble ourselves together on a Wednesday night. Thank you for our WANA teachers and their willingness to take time and study and prepare for tonight. Bless them. Bless us in our Bible study. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Everybody face that pretty American flag. Put your right hand over your heart. Ready? Here we go. Attention. Salute. Pledge. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And our Christian flag. That's all right. We got a Christian flag right there in the corner. It's good morning. We'll do the Bible for those Bibles if you have them tonight. Grab your Bible. All right. Hand on your Bible and on your heart. Ready? Here we go. Attention. Salute. Pledge. I pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word. I will make it a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path and hide its words in my heart that I might not sin against God. Awesome job. Adults have a seat. Teens have a seat. Cubbies, you can head out tonight. Cubbies, cubbies, cubbies. Here we go. You can't go without a high five. Here we go. And sparks right behind. TNT. stand all over the building tonight. Jesus loves even me. We'll do all three verses. That's Jesus loves even me. Good, good song. Jesus loves me, I am so glad. 
Wonderful biblical truth tonight. Thank you so much for uh, being here this evening and for those who are uh, letting us into their homes via live stream. We're honored to be in your presence tonight as well. Let's uh, open up in prayer. Let me give you two requests very quickly. Some of you have seen these on social media. We mentioned that uh, Brother Delmas Roar had developed COVID. Sister Annette has COVID as well, and she's been in the ER most of the day today with some significant issues related to that. Uh, she's home tonight. Is that right? She's home, but pray for Miss Annette and Brother Delmas, both of them dealing with COVID and some other issues as well. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful to be in your house tonight. Lord, I'm so glad I can stand and say that Jesus loves me. What a blessing. Lord, I pray that you would indeed speak through our Bible study time tonight. Lord, as we open up the Word of God, I pray that you would illuminate it, help us to see in our study tonight what you have prepared for us. Thank you, Lord, for the folks that are here tonight and for those that brought their children. May you bless them. In the sweet name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We'll remain standing. Let's have a song to sing, Brother Ken. Y'all can be seated. I'm going to sing a special. Then we'll do a song. Y'all can have a song. <laughs> it's a song that's often on my heart, and I think many of you know it. It's always a blessing. Hope it, uh, hope it blesses y'all tonight as I sing it. singing about my Lord for so many years. I've sung when I've been happy. I've sung when I've had tears. Some folks may even question if it's all been just a show. But the reason that I'm singing, I smiles. I bowed my head and whispered, 
Squire Parsons song. That's Absolutely. good, buddy. Amen. Let's all stand together. The windows of heaven tonight. We'll sing it one time through. That's the windows of heaven. Fellowship ever how you feel comfortable. Teens, come on, you're up next with Brother Ken. Head upstairs. Turn with me in your Bibles tonight, please, to the book of Job, if you would, please. The book of Job. A lot of verses that we're going to look at this evening. A couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning, I did my best to give you a message about the power that we have in corporate prayer. The ability that we possess as the church family to unite together and pray singularly about a specific or a given subject, praying with specificity. Then last Wednesday night, I talked to you about uh, 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 what, what happens when our prayers feel like they go unanswered. How do we handle ourselves? What are the steps that we take, the actions that we do? Tonight, I want to go in a, uh, a different direction, but give you a message that I believe is aligned with those two topics. Job is, in my opinion, probably the most misunderstood book of the Bible. It is a book, to be very candid with you, that is somewhat challenging to read. The reason for it is Job is one of three books in our Bible that are, in fact, books of poetry. Job, Psalms, and Proverbs are the three books of our Bible that in their original incarnation and even in their King James translation are, in fact, books of poetry. They're called the three poetic books. Psalms, as you know, 
is the song book or the hymn book for the nation of Israel. So when you are reading the Psalms, they're not chapters in a book. They are songs that the Israelites would sing at various occasions. Proverbs is easy to understand. It's a book full of sayings and couplets, if you will, or, or ideas put forth mostly by King Solomon, not exclusively. That is truly a book of wisdom. It's a book of ideas. And the book of, uh, the book of uh, Proverbs is, is full of good, godly advice, if you will. But Job is different. Job is just tough to read. A couple reasons for that. By all accounts, Job is what we call a, a, an epic poem. In fact, when you, are, when you look at Job from a purely literature perspective, people usually talk about it in the same voice that they do, Homer's Iliad or Odyssey. And both of those epic poems are beautiful, but they're tough to read. Another reason that Job is difficult to read is like Psalms and Proverbs, it's written in couplets. So if you were to look at any uh, verse in any of the 150 books, uh, 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 Psalms, or, or any of the chapters of Proverbs, and in Job, every verse is a couplet. A couplet is nothing more than two ideas that are put together into one thought, separated by some kind of punctuation point. So you might have a period, or you might have a comma, or you might have a colon or a semicolon, but you got two ideas put together in one verse. And the reason Job is difficult to read is that it's a poem that tells a story. It's not a book of ideas. It's not a book of songs. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a poem, an epic poem, that tells a story. But I think the, the, the biggest reason that Job is so misunderstood is that, candidly, it has just been mischaracterized. I, I grew up all of my life hearing people talk about the patience of Job. Or you would hear somebody say, he or she, man, she's as patient as Job. But when you actually unpack the book of Job, and you read through it, and it, again, it's not an easy read, but when you read through it, you'll find that it has absolutely nothing to do with patience. In fact, what Job is all about is a godly person whose life gets upended and he turns heavenward and looks to God and says, why? Why? Now, I've told you on many occasions I grew up all of my life in church hearing preachers, and, and I understand why they said what they did, but they incorrectly, frankly, would say things like, it's a sin to question God. And then there's the day I'm, as a young teenager, laying in my bed, and I'm reading the story of the crucifixion, and one of the seven statements that Jesus says from the cross is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, if we believe that Jesus was sinless, and we do, he's perfect, and he in his perfection on the cross, in his humanity, but never, never sinning, looks heavenward and says, my God, my God, why? Then it can't be a sin to look up to God and say, why? The sin creeps in when we start going from why to this is not right, I don't deserve this, this is wrong, there's no sin, shame, or sorrow in looking to God and saying, help me make sense of what I'm facing. 
The theme of Job, and what I hope you will get out of it tonight, is twofold. Number one, when the whys begin to take over. When you go through points in your life and you just can't seem to get past the why, this is happening. The second one, the second point I hope you'll get tonight, or the second theme I hope you'll get tonight, is how to relate to those who come to you with their own why questions. When they, when they come to you as a person of faith, when they come to you for advice, when they come to you for, for, for some Christian fellowship, and they're experiencing their own moments of why. Many, many years ago, there was a show on that my wife loved to watch. It was called What Not to Wear. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Seven or eight of you sinners, you know what I'm talking about. She loved that show. And, of course, if you don't know what it is, it was a show of two people, a man and a woman, and, and they would take people who were kind of poorly dressed, usually women, they'd give them makeovers and teach them how to dress themselves for their body and all that stuff. And so the, the title of the show was, was always a bit of a pun, What Not to Wear. Well, one of the things you often hear about in Job are his three, or is his three friends. So if I was to give this message a, a, a subtitle tonight, the title would be How to Handle Our Wives or When Our Wives Take Over. The subtitle would be How Not to Be a Friend. Because what you will see tonight with these actual, there's not three friends, there's four, which you'll see tonight of these, these four friends of Job did exactly what you should not do when someone comes to you for spiritual advice. They conduct themselves in a way that is completely opposite of how we should handle ourselves when someone comes to us and in their own wives. So we're going to look at three things tonight as we unpack this together. Number one, note with me if you would please, Job's tragedies. Job's tragedies. Now I'm going to spend a lot of time on this. We'll read some verses in just a moment. But most of you who have been in church for any length of time, you know all that Job endured. You know that when the Bible opens, it says in verse number one, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright. Let me pause a moment and remind you that the word perfect does not mean sinless. What does it mean? Well, the Holy Spirit defines it for us. It tells us exactly what the word perfect means. One that feared God and eschewed evil. An individual who kept a short account with God. An individual who, who kept a short license, if you will, who did not allow sin to abide in his life or that of his family. Scholars are in universal agreement that with the exception of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, that Job is in fact the oldest book of the Bible. Certainly, Genesis 1 through 11 that recounts creation and the flood, that predates Job. But one of the reasons that scholars are so confident about the age of Job is there's no mention of the law. There's no mention of Moses. There's no mention of anything that permeates the rest of the Bible from, from, from jo uh, Joseph forward. So there is a universal agreement that, that Job was written sometime between Genesis 11 and the law. It is a very old book. 
It's a reminder to us that though God was operating through the nation of Israel, there were other individuals who were godly. Nowhere does it say Job was a Jew. Nowhere does it say he kept the law. Nowhere does it even talk about the law. All we know is that Job was a godly man and that he eschewed evil. Consequently, we also know he had a bullseye on him. Because he was a godly man and because he eschewed evil, he had a bullseye on him. And by the way, he was a successful man. He was a wealthy man. He had land. He had, he had crops. He had animals. He had children. He had a successful marriage. Job was by all accounts a very successful man. And look at me. In a matter of moments, it was gone. You know the story. You know how it begins to unfold. Job loses his finances. He loses his fortune. And then worst of all, he loses his family. Finally, he loses his own fitness. One by one, everything that Job valued, everything that made Job the man he was, was taken away from him. And the only thing that was left was his wife. Job, by all accounts, had major, major tragedies. I'll pause a moment and say to you, that though I've never seen anyone endure all that Job had to endure, no one under the sound of my voice or listening online, no one, none of us are immune from these tragedies of life. All of us experience these moments where it seems like we wake up and everything is grand, but the time we go to bed, everything has fallen apart. And another fallacy I think permeates our Christian faith is the idea of Job's wife. Again, I've heard all of my life, boy, good godly men ripped Job's wife a new one. Because she looked at him and said, curse God and die. And I've heard her uh, uh, stereotyped in all kinds of horrible ways. Look at me, folks. Job's wife also lost her children. Job's wife also lost her home. Job's wife also lost her family and her fortune. And now she's standing there watching the man that she loves, who's created this entire life, agonizing because of his own uh, physical limitations. Now he's covered in boils. And I don't want to be too graphic. But the only way he can get any kind of relief is to take the clay pots, heat them up, scrape the boils. Uh, that provides him just a little bit of relief. It is an agonizing thing to watch. And in my little humble opinion, Job's wife is looking at the man that she loves and thinking your only way out of this is death. I think she's got sympathy for him. I think she's looking at him and saying, you can't live like this. You can't go on like this. Say something. Curse God so that he can take you out of here. I think we all understand. Tragedy, hear me. Tragedies of life cause us to do one of two things. Number one, they'll cause us to run away from God. Or number two, they'll cause us to run to God. They'll cause us, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a moment of uh, not understanding, to be filled with anger and to be upset with God and, 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 and not understanding why these crazy moments are happening. You don't have to turn to it, but Job 14 verse 1 reminds us that man is but a born of woman is a few days and full of what? Trouble. 
John 16, Jesus tells us that in the world, you'll have tribulation. These why moments cause us to run away from God, or they cause us to run to God. Well, which direction did Job run? Both. Both. How do you know? Well, go, if you would, please, to begin with, to chapter 1, verse 21. After all has been taken, after, hear what I'm about to say, after God has allowed Satan to take it all away. Did you hear me? After God has allowed Satan to take it all away, Job says in chapter 1, verse number 21, Look at what he says. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. In all of his despair at this point, in all of his destruction, in all that's happened around him, Job had an unbelievably faith-based mature mindset. And if I can paraphrase it, he said, when I came into this world, I had nothing. And everything that I had, God gave me. How can I be mad if he's taken it away? It was his to begin with. Look at me. That's easy preaching. That's hard living, church. Easy to stand up and preach it. It's hard to live it. But in that moment, never once did Job say, I don't deserve this. This is not right. This is not fair. But as you begin to read Job, everything changed. And I never hear people talk about this. Job's mindset changed. He went from naked, when I came in, naked I go out, blessed be the name of the Lord, I'll not curse him, I'll not say anything, to his mind becomes overwhelmed with why. And I'm going to be candid. I'll, I'll not throw a single spiritual stone at him because I've never walked in those shoes and you haven't either. But here's what I know. Our troubles, they can either make us or they can break us. And would you like to know a little bit of, let me give you Gregology. You want to know why Job went from, blessed be the name of the Lord, to I don't know why I'm going through this. It's because of his friends. It's because of his friends that were there to, quote, comfort him. Let's look at it together. I want to unpack some of this with you tonight. We go from Job's tragedies to Job's tests. His friends, according to chapter 2, verse 11, flip there if you would, chapter 2, verse 11, the Bible says, now when Job's three friends, and by the way, I told you there were four, there are three who come as a unit. They come together. In fact, you're going to read in just a moment, they make an appointment to come together to comfort Job. There's a fourth one who comes around a little bit later. But in Job chapter 2, verse 11, it says, When Job's three friends heard all this evil that was come upon him, 
They came everyone from his own place. Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, for they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. If that's all that we had, it would be good for them. Good for them. Bless their hearts. They see a brother in need. They realize that this man that they love and that has been good to them, has been kind to them, they hear about his troubles, and you know bad news travels fast. And so as the bad news begins to travel, they three of them make an appointment, call each other up, say, hey, Job's hurting, let's get together. Let's go, let's go, let's go have him out. They make an appointment, and here, here comes uh, the three friends. There's Eliphaz, there's Bildad, and there's Zophar. The three friends who were supposed to be there to mourn with Job and to comfort him. And if that's all we had, again, we would say, thank you for showing up, fellas. Pray with him. Help him. Help him get through this. I'm going to be blunt, but they had to go and open their mouths. And I want you to see some of the foolishness of these three friends. I have no doubt they went to the First Baptist Church. Amen. Let's look at them together. And by that, I mean our Baptist, us as Baptists. Notice, if you would, please, Eliphaz comes first. And as we look in chapter number four, if you have a reference Bible of any sort, it says the first discourse or the first conversation or the first words of Eliphaz. Eliphaz is the first to speak. And again, you got because this is poetry, it's an epic poem. There's imagery, there's symbolism, there's metaphors, there's personification, there's flowery language like poetry is. But when you read what Eliphaz is saying, he is the man of experience. He has been there, done that, and when you read what he says, he's basically saying to Job, no matter how bad it is for you, I've had it worse. Have you ever met anybody like that? Have you ever met any? Some of y'all are looking and nodding your heads. You know what I'm talking about. Doesn't matter what somebody else is going through. They've had it. I am not making this up. God is my witness. I'm not making this up. There was a lady that we used to go to church with many years ago, not, not at Amazing Grace or here, but at another church, in fact, at Newport News when we were first married. And I'm sitting there. She was one of those individuals who no matter how bad somebody had it or what they had, she'd had it worse. And I heard the deacon ask for prayer for his prostate cancer, and I watched her turn to the one behind her and said, I've had that. Amen. Hear me, church. That's not what needs to be noted. If you read in verse number 3 and 4, he really flatters Job. He starts out by talking about what a good man Job is. And then in verses 5, 6, 7, and 11, he begins to flog Job or beat Job up. In verse 5 and 6, he talks about Job being weak. Look at verse 5. But now it has come upon thee, and thou faintest. It touches thee, and thou art troubled. Well, yeah, I am troubled. 
I lost my, my children. I lost my house. I lost my finances. And now I'm so sick I'm ready to die. That personifies the word troubled. Eliphaz keeps talking. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but, but and look at verse number 9. By the blast of God, they perish. And by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. Can I paraphrase it? What Eliphaz is saying is, Job, you're getting what's due you, buddy. You're getting what's coming to you. Take it like a man. Notice, if you would, verse 12, all the way down through chapter 5. Eliphaz just keeps talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. He's there to comfort Job. He's there to help, help Job mourn. And pardon me for saying this. My mama used to get so mad, he just won't shut up. My mama used to say that shut up was the S word. <laughs> Eliphaz just keeps throwing jab after jab after jab into Job. Some kind of friend. Now, chapter 6, finally, Job begins to speak a little bit and and if you read chapter 6 and chapter 7, you find that Job is already beginning to pivot. He's changing from the chapter 1, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's already beginning to pivot. Why? Well, if you listen to that windbag, you would too. If you had to endure a friend like Eliphaz telling you what a bad person you are and the death of your ten children and the destruction of your house, he's a one, it's a wonder Job didn't stand up and knock the living snot out of him. Now turn to chapter 8. Friend number 2 begins to speak. Friend number 2 begins to speak. Eliphaz. Eliphaz is now shut up a little bit. Pardon me for saying it like that. Takes a breath. Bildad begins to pipe up. Notice what it says in verse 1. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, How long wilt thou speak these things? You know what he's saying? How long are you going to complain? They're there to help him mourn. And he's saying, how long are you going to complain? And then he says, and how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? I, are you kidding me? I mean, he's calling Job a windbag. And it just gets worse. You can read all the way down through the rest of this chapter. And Bildad does the very same thing, but he's even more pointed. He does everything but blame Job. He does everything but say, Job, this is your fault. And again, when you read Job in chapter 9 answering Bildad, he pivots a little more. He pivots a little more. What are you trying to say, preacher? I'm saying there are times... When friends are not friends at all, listen to me, even friends who possess to be in, or profess to be in the faith. Now we get to the third friend. Turn with me, if you would, please, 
to Job chapter 11. Job chapter 11. Again, if you have a reference Bible, it refers to this as Zophar's first discourse or his first conversation. He's a, he's a man of estimation. He's, he's got all the answers. Look at verse 1. Then answered Zophar the Naamathite and said, Should not the multitudes of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified? That's a fancy way of saying, Job, you are sure of complaining. Look at verse 3. Should, look, look, look at what he said. Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed? For thou hast said, my doctrine is pure. I am clean in thine eyes. If you go back and read what Job tries to say after, after both of his friends, first Eliphaz and then Bildad, he tries to say, wait a minute, fellas. I've not done anything that would warrant this. You're blaming me for this. You're saying I'm at fault and there's nothing. And now here steps up friend number three so far and says, Job, you ain't nothing but a big old liar. Look at verse four. Thou hast said my doctrine is pure. I'm clean in thy eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee, that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to which that is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. In other words, <laughs> I can't even believe he would say this, but what he is saying is as bad as you've got it, Job, you really deserve more. Can you imagine? I mean, think with me a second. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I, want, I want to put this in perspective. Imagine you're standing at a funeral procession and a man's just lost his wife and you come up and hug it and say, I'm praying for you, but you know you really deserve more and you keep going. You'd be lucky if you walked out of there with your bones intact. But that's exactly what this friend is saying. You think you got it bad? But in reality, you deserve. Now, let's be clear. We all deserve hell. We get it. I get it. But that ain't what this guy's saying. He ain't talking spiritual application here. You keep reading, and you will find that the advice of each friend gets worse and worse and worse. And after every conversation, Job drifts further and further and further away from God. Because in each instance, the pain, that, the very real pain that Job feels just has buckets of salt poured into it. Can I, can I give you a little tiny piece of advice? When someone comes to you and they're hurting, and I mean they're hurting, they don't come to you looking for you to fix it. Let me say that again. When someone's coming to you and they're hurting, they're not asking you to fix it. They're asking you to love them, to listen to them, and let them lean on you for just a little bit. Now, I'm going to tell you, it took me a lot of time to figure that out. Because my nature is to fix 
My, my, my job is to fix, to put out fires. All right, you got a problem? Let's unpack it. Let's figure it out. Let's fix it. But there are times when people are really hurting, and they just need somebody to love them. They need somebody to listen to them. And they need somebody to lean on. This in Job is what not to do when somebody's hurting. So number one, we've got Job's tragedies. Number two, we've got Job's tests. Number three, we've got Job's testimony. We've got Job's testimony. At the beginning of Job, we already read it. Chapter 1, verse 20. You don't have to turn it again. Naked I was when I come to the world, naked I will go up. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in fact, actually, go back, go back to chapter 1 a second. I want you to see something. Again, something else I don't hear people talk about a lot. Look at, look at, look at if you would, please, at, at verse 20. We didn't read verse 20. Let's look at verse 20. Job rose. This is after the, the final piece of bad news. One after another, the bad news comes. A final piece comes in verse 19. Job arose, rent his mantle. That means he took off his, like that for us, it'd be like, take out. That means he's in mourning now. That was a sign of mourning. Shaved his head, another sign of mourning. Fell down upon the ground. And what did he do, church? Worshipped. He worshipped. When everything that Job loved, everything that Job valued, everything that made him the man he was, was yanked away in a matter of minutes. Job mourns. Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time to mourn. But he gets on his knees and he worships. And that's when he says in verse 21, Naked came out of my mother's room. Naked I shall return, and shall I return thither. Lord gave, Lord take the way. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, in these conversations with these three friends, and I didn't even give you Elihu for the sake of time, a fourth friend pops up, Elihu. He's not connected with the three friends, but he is another friend, and he comes in and he just pours it on again. And eventually, Job wisens up enough to say, you know what? I don't need to hear from any of you. If that's the best you got, keep your mouth shut. That's the Stanley Town couplet. If that's the best you got, just be quiet. Look at Job chapter 13. Look at Job chapter 13, verse 15. Well, let's actually go back to verse 13. I have verse 13 starred, and if I have a smiley face by it and exclamation points. This is Job speaking to these four friends. He says, hold your peace. You know what that means? Come on, tell me, church, what's that mean? Shut up. Be quiet. <laughs> That's the real poetic, polite way of saying shut your mouth. Hold your peace. Let me alone, that I may speak, and let come on me what will. 
Wherefore do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Look at what he says in verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. It's like as Job in this moment of great crisis, in this moment of great need, in this moment of great pain, in this moment of great despair, here comes these three friends and eventually a fourth one. And he's all, guys, thank you so much. I appreciate you being here. I love you. I need you so much. And one by one, they just knock him and knock him and knock him. And every time they knock him, he's turning further away till he finally says, you know what? Enough. The God that brought me here is the one I'm trusting, not you. And in that instant, the entire book of Job changes. In that instant, the entire book of Job changes. Now, you can keep reading, and the friends keep at it. I mean, for 20 more chapters, they keep at it. They just won't let up. Turn with me, if you would, please, to chapter 42. The last chapter of this beautiful epic poem. I love when God speaks. And again, I, I, I heard Job all my life, but I never heard anybody preach it on this little passage here. Because God doesn't just speak to Job. He lets those four boys have it. He unloads on the four boys, the four friends. Look at verse 7. So, and it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, read verses 1 through 6. Good stuff. He spoke to Job. The Lord said to Eliphaz, the Timonite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. For you've not spoken of me, the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Therefore, take you now seven bullocks, seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer up yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that you have not spoken of me the things which is right, like my servant Job. That's God's way of saying, fella, shut up. And get your heart right. Get your mind back on the things of God. And then jump down, if you would, please, to verse 14. Let's go back to verse 12. Go back to verse 12. We're done. 42, 12. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. If he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 politicians. No, 1,000 she-asses, sorry. He had seven sons, three daughters. And you compare that to what Job had at the beginning, and God is just loading his wagon up double-fold. Keep reading. He called the name of the first Jemima. You know, in the Bible, names always mean something. Jemima means delight in the Lord. Daylight, delight in the Lord. The name of the second, Keziah, which means fragrance. In the name of the third, Karen Hapak, which means glowing. In all the land, there were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even for a generation, and Job died being old and full of days. Now, here's the hard part, folks. You can close your Bibles. 
I said to you a moment ago, this book is really all about how to handle it when the whys become overwhelming. Job never gets that answer. God never says to Job, here's why this happened. That's tough for us to accept sometimes. But it is a reminder that God is operating on a level that is altogether different from us. He's operating on a plane, if you will, a platform or a domain that, that is altogether different from ours. So there will be times when there is no why. Well, we don't have the answer. But whatever you do, don't be like one of those friends. Because with friends like that, God knows we don't need enemies. Let's stand to our feet. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for a few moments to open up this beautiful, beautiful book of Job. And be reminded that even in our worst, worst moments, you're an ever-present help. Lord, it's my, it's my humble hope and prayer that we as believers would know how to conduct ourselves when the whys become overwhelming in our own life. And Lord, would know how to conduct ourselves when those who need us come to us with their own whys. Lord, there are times where we just need to point them to you. We love them. Let them lean on us as we lean on you. Lord, again, thank you for this church. For what it stands for, folks who are here to hear the gospel, hungry to learn of you. Bless us now as we depart. We will thank you and we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you for tuning in to us tonight. We love you. God bless you this evening.